Hello and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Roland Dunn is the chairman of Six Nations Rugby and has been CEO of two of the world's most powerful telco brands. Between 2008 and 2016, Ronan established a formidable reputation as the CEO at O2, the UK's largest wireless operator. He then moved to the US to lead Verizon Consumer Group, where he was responsible for more than 100 million consumers and built the first 5G technology network. He remains a strategic advisor to the Verizon CEO. Ronan, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Thanks so much for joining. It's a real honour to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to getting your views on where leadership meets employee engagement and your thoughts on how we can all communicate with more purpose and impact. But I'd like to start by rewinding uh, the clock 14 years, if that's okay, because I was a journalist uh, when I first met you back in 2008. Uh, You were hosting a press event as the newish CEO at O2. And I remember thinking, and there's a little bit of flattery coming here, Ronan, (laughs) I remember thinking that you had uh, a certain gravitas and charisma and you kind of owned the room. I remember thinking that. And I'm really interested in charisma as a comms and leadership quality, uh, whether it's a natural trait or whether it's something that we kind of uh, develop through diligence and preparation. So for you, does charisma come naturally or is it something you've had to work on? So I'm not sure I would even describe it as charisma, but I think when people speak, there can be a real difference in depth and texture to the narrative and the conversation. And I think what sometimes comes across as charisma is this ability to enrich the words and give them a depth and resonance which draws people in. And that's something that I've found uh, naturally. And when I first took over as the boss at O2, I described my job as being chief cheerleader and chief storyteller, very much recognizing that the role of a leader is to add context and texture and enrich the conversation. So if that's charisma, then I think it's probably natural. Yeah. And that that, that point about being a chief cheerleader and storyteller, and I think you also said that you you had a responsibility to make each employee uh, the success that they deserve to be. Um, Can you just unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So one of the things that as I was moving in my career journey, I hadn't naturally recognized myself as a CEO. I think I'd recognized myself as a leader and a team player. But as I evolved to that opportunity to take over as CEO, I spent some time reflecting as to what was I going to bring to the table that would complement what others were bringing. Because in my view, great teams are built around the complementarity and the differences, and real diversity is around bringing different skills, competencies to the table. So in that specific instance, I felt very strongly that my ability to join the narrative, to tell the story in a way that whether you were on the shop floor or whether you were in the executive boardroom, that you understood what we were trying to achieve, but also had a real understanding of your role in delivering that. And so that balance of being chief cheerleader and chief storyteller, but doing it in a way that I was setting up a context in which the individual could be the success they deserve to be because they had a better understanding of the role that they were playing. And honestly, when you give people context like that, what you actually give them is confidence and confidence to exercise their skills and judgment. And that's what great leaders do. Yeah. And how would you describe your um, personal communication style? 
And and how did you have to adapt that style when you moved from O2 in the UK to Verizon in the US? So I think I'd break into two parts. I, I think there's always an element of you need to adjust your narrative to audience. Uh, and that can be as simple as one-to-one type conversations, which can have a different texture to a presentation to a room, but also at different levels of an organization. And I think one of the things that I've been very focused on is in the one-to-one conversations is identifying what drives and motivates people. And so you talk to uh, the context of that conversation, those who want to be emotionally engaged in the vision versus those who want to have a very fact-based understanding of what the task at hand is. So in every team I've uh, been involved in and every team I've built, we've done uh, analysis of personalities and we've actually used that as a tool to recognize that some of us are more nature and nurture and some of us are warrior. And so that's one thing. And then the second thing is when you go to a larger audience, what I find is that it's really important to put structure into a conversation because if you have 500 people in a room, the chances are that that conversation will land in the water cooler conversation that happens the day after or as people leave the room. So if you create a frame and hooks, what you allow different people to do is to remember different elements and different things will resonate with them. But then they put the jigsaw back together again when they talk to their friends and colleagues afterwards because they bring the pieces of the jigsaw back. So I always think about frames and hooks when you're having a conversation, something that you can go back to afterwards. And I guess that's the sort of storytelling element of it, isn't it? You know, stories have these great frames and hooks and they're they're, they're memorable and distinct. And stories also have chapters. And I think that's an important point to emphasize is because a great story could well be one that's not yet finished. And one of the ambitions that I had as the CEO when I uh, took over at O2 was our our greatest moment in some respects had been the rebranding, the success of converting the Millennium Dome to being the O2. But my challenge to the management team was, do you want to be a witness to somebody else's chapter or do you want to hold a pen and write the next chapter? And that was really the opportunity for us as a management team is to write the next chapter on a book that was already had a fantastic start and a decent middle, and we just had to make it into a blockbuster. (laughs) So to continue the story analogy, I mean, stories can have uh, very positive moments and they can have negative moments. And I guess uh, you, you once said that you felt personally accountable for every single soul on the ship, sometimes without knowing where that ship was going. Um, In terms of the O2 story, what were the difficult moments and how did you handle communications in those difficult moments? So I think probably for for the broad public, the most significant challenge that O2 had during my time of leadership was we had a catastrophic network failure back in the summer of 2012. As a result of that, um, about a third of our customers lost service over a period of about 19 hours. And Truthfully, that's as bad as it can get for a communications company. You know, it's essentially a hygiene factor that the services work. And so the key there and a real lesson that I learned was about owning the narrative in that situation. Everybody was looking to the leader for the thing they needed. For the staff, reassurance that they were being supported in this time of need. For customers, an explanation. And actually, I recall very specifically that we decided after 12 hours of essentially silence saying, we have a network issue, we'll update you in due course. 
uh, we came to the conclusion that that narrative had run its course and we needed to be more explicit. And so I sat down with my then comms director, a guy called Richard Poston, and Richard and I discussed what were the four key questions that needed answers to. And they were what happened? Why did it happen? How do you make sure it never happens again? And what are you going to do to make it up to us? And so it was great that we'd framed what the questions were. The one challenge we had was we didn't know the answer to any of the four questions at that time. But we took that frame, and you'll see this theme coming through in a number of, of uh, elements. So I took the frame, and we went live. We went on Sky, and Kay Burley was interviewing me. We did it down the line with a satellite truck outside uh, the door. And Kay started and basically you know, went straight for the jugular, and it was about you know, embarrassing. Are you going to resign? Are you going to apologize, et cetera? So I took the challenge and I said, well, of course, I'm going to apologize. But as for resigning, what actually the customers who are you know, watching and listening today is they want to know what happened. They want to know why did it happen. They want to know what are you going to do to make sure it never happens again. And, you know, when you get it sorted, how are you going to make it up for us? And, okay, everybody in the organization is focused on those four questions. And so in that example, what you got was a reassurance from employees that – we were all on the same page. We were going to get this sorted and we'd make it up and we would be accountable. And for our customers, they had the reassurance of, yes, that's exactly the questions I would like answers to. So in that example, it's a very good example for me of we framed a narrative in an environment where, while we didn't have all the answers, we committed ourselves to answering the questions that each of our stakeholder groups felt were important at the time. And by doing that, not only did we buy ourselves time, but we actually bought ourselves respect. Kay Burley finished the uh, interview by saying, well, that's reassuring honesty and transparency from a CEO. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have asked for more mm -hmm. as the last line of an, an interview in that situation where I genuinely doubted that I'd survived the day in my job. It's, it's fascinating that you can actually turn not knowing the answers to an advantage if you're honest and transparent, which I guess is really important. And would you say that is part of your leadership style, transparency? I think it's so important. And I think transparency and vulnerability, Hugh, I think it's really important for people to realize that the who they are is important to the audience as well as what they say. And so many leaders fall into the trap of presenting themselves as somebody else. Yeah. And then when the cracks show, then when the pressure's on, people don't see the same person show up. And that's where they lose confidence in their leadership. Whereas everybody wanted me to solve the problem in that situation. But they didn't doubt that who I was when I showed up on Kay Burley or in the middle of the night working with the engineers in the network uh, management center that Ronan, the person that they knew and believed was the leader yesterday, was the same person that showed up in the middle of a crisis. So I think that vulnerability, authenticity is really the key. And of course, transparency is an integral element of that. And authenticity, I read uh, in one of your interviews, I think it was actually a podcast that then became a Forbes magazine piece about the six leadership traits. And authenticity uh, is key, I think is one of those leadership traits. And did that sort of lesson of leadership come directly from that episode or from a series of episodes like it? Actually, what it was, was it was more an insight. I struggled a little bit when I first became a CEO and the reason I struggled was that I presumed that my previous experience had all been as a subject matter expert and a trusted advisor as a finance guy. And therefore, I needed to have either new skills or a new approach as the CEO. And in the first few months, that 
I found that difficult. But what I realized very quickly, and I had something of a, a moment when I was sitting in my office one day where it dawned on me that actually all the experience I had, even though the job title had been different, was still my experience. And so that idea of me with all of the realities of it's my first CEO job, the vulnerabilities, other things, was actually the best way I could show up. Because it's a bit like being in a movie. Unless you're a professional actor, the role that you're most likely to be able to play and play consistently is the role of you. And so that idea of, look, if you're just yourself, doesn't mean you have all the skills, but does anybody else? So showing up as myself afforded me the opportunity to say, I'm new at this. I don't understand that. That's not something I've done before. As well as repositioning some of the stuff that I did know and say, I learned this as an accountant, but it's completely relevant to the challenge of the situation we find ourselves in. So it, it was really that realization of me being me was the best way that I could succeed as being a CEO. And that's where the authenticity really resonated with me. Bring your vulnerabilities, bring the gaps in your knowledge and experience, because guess what? It's a team. Yeah. That, that vulnerability point actually is, I'm really interested in that because I guess most of us who aren't CEOs, we look at the likes of yourself and you see this confidence, you see this gravitas, you see this authority. Um, but I guess behind the scenes, sometimes you must be feeling, you know, the pressure, certain things that we all feel, right? So how do you, how do you manage that? Let's say you're up on stage in front of an audience of a thousand people and you've got a big thing to announce. Um, how do you manage those nerves and how do you prepare for those moments? Well, the first thing to say is, if I may, just to take it back slightly, is I'll let you into the CEO secret that most people don't realize until they get there. And sometimes they don't work it out straight away. And that secret is that because you've been appointed CEO, it doesn't mean that you need to know the answer to the questions today that you didn't know the answer to yesterday. Actually, the role of CEO is to manage the uncertainty that exists in business, in whatever activity, because not every question has a black and white or yes and no answer. Most people think that when you get to the top, you need to know the answer to everything. It's the exact opposite. You need to deal with the reality of uncertainty associated with questions that don't have those answers. And actually, that's quite liberating. So when it comes to the stress and challenge of, oh, I'm accountable for everything, I'm actually accountable for managing the risk the uncertainty. So when it comes to preparing, that willingness to frame things around the residual risk and understand the company's risk appetite is the way you balance that stresses, strains. It's the reason why when you build a team, you look at where the risk appetite of a company is and you build skills and competencies to mitigate risk where you can so that you allocate that risk usually to the marketplace because that's where you get the best return. But when it comes to the individual, the thing I find is, you know, there's a lot talked about preparation and, you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And I, and I agree with that. But I also think that a lot of people fall into the trap of being overscripted. Yeah. And what happens is their identity and their authenticity disappears in the framing of somebody else's words, somebody else's narrative. So what I try to do in that example of in front of 5,000 people is, yes, I've prepared. I know what my subject matter is. But even if there's a long form of whatever speech I want to make, I then throw that away and I summarize it down 
to bullets of important messages, and I tell stories around those messages. And there's a famous Winston Churchill quote which says, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. And going long form and then distilling down into bullets in short form, incredibly valuable tool and suits my particular uh, narrative style really, really well. Yeah. And I've worked with leaders who have had speeches and communications written for them. And I've worked with leaders that have done it themselves. Do you tend to do it yourself or is it a bit of both? How does it work for you? I, I very much define the chapter headings. And then I usually get, you know, comm support to then build it out. And then what I do is I edit back in the personality to it. So I will never use frames of words and, and things that would not naturally sound like me. But what I will do is I'll very often leave spaces where the person who's help, helping me to script actually knows Ronan's anecdote, Ronan's story, Ronan whatever, and they just frame out the spots. And what they're really doing is teeing the ball up for me. And then I tell the stories around those things. But that way it has a structure to make sure that, like all good communicators, if you have five points to make, it's best that you make them. Because when you say, and finally, and you're not sure what that and finally point is, it tends to lose the audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to move on to inspiration now, if that's okay. In your career, who have you worked with or learned from that has had the biggest impact on you? It's a great question, and I don't have a really, really sharp answer, and I'll explain why. Uh, I'm somebody who harvests. I, I'm a 15-year-old curious kid is the way I describe myself, and I'm fascinated by everything. So I'm like a squirrel in the wintertime, just you know, foraging and taking the nuts in and then keeping them for you know the winter time so i pick up nuggets tidbits from different uh, different people and a couple of uh, examples and and people that i would reference but when i first came to work at o2 i was brought in to work in the group by uh, a guy called david finch who was the first group cfo at o2 now he had been my boss in his previous job and my previous job we'd worked together in excel the logistics company and one of the things that David taught me, which I was fascinated by, and it goes to communications and other things, was he said, as a CFO, sometimes you're in a meeting and you're not the primary person to deliver uh, the presentation or whatever, um, and you're not necessarily the key decision maker. So he said in his early career, he used to kind of switch off a little bit. But then he realized that those meetings were a perfect opportunity to be a detached observer as to the effectiveness of communications. And so what he did was he literally observed other people who were presenting, how they did, watched the key stakeholders in the room, and essentially you know, assessed and scored how effective different styles of communication were with different elements of the audience. And as a result, evolved his style of influencing from that. Now, that for me was absolutely fascinating because I'm a student of everything. And therefore, the idea of adding that as a lens in a meeting was a really easy thing for me to do, to pick up and observe and say, that particular person has been really effective with that individual, but has not really made an impact on this person over here who's a key stakeholder. So that's that's one very good example. And the other uh, example I would give is um, the ability to lift one's head. When I was the CFO in O2 UK, I had as my boss, Matthew Key, and um, Matthew 
uh, identified in me the prospects of maybe me being a general manager, a CEO before uh, I did. And Matthew went to Peter Erskine, who was then the chair. And the two of them actually proactively thought about the prospect of me taking on a senior leadership role and what would need to be true. And that was a great example of two people who, because of their development thinking, their career planning, etc., actually were able to see before I did some of the steps that would be good for me to round me out to be a future CEO. And I will be eternally grateful to both of them. Not only were they great sponsors, but they actually mapped out for me some of the things. And even before I realized that's why I was doing them, they were giving me additional responsibilities outside the finance function. They were asking me to do other things. And it was only afterwards they said, of course, we were prepping you to see would you be, as we thought, a good candidate. So that sort of leadership, uh, you know, I think is something that really had an influence on me, people who looked further than maybe I was looking. That's so interesting that others recognized your potential as a, as a leader, as a CEO before you did. Have you paid that on at all in the future? Have you sort of noticed that in others? Um, do you ever sit with somebody and think, actually, you've got what it takes? Um, there's a test that I always take, and it's not a disloyalty test, but I always ask myself the question, if you were leaving tomorrow, who are the people you would take with you? And very often what you identify as people who are two or three or four levels down who've made an impact on you. And because I ask myself that question when I'm not planning to leave, that helps me to see, okay, well, if that's somebody who identified now, what am I actually doing to make sure that person has the runway and the, the opportunities to develop? And I won't go into uh, names, but I would identify one individual um, at Verizon who is now one of the most senior women in telecoms in the world who has come through because of their own talent, but also because I identified early that with the right sort of support and coaching and the right development, that the opportunity for her was probably greater than either she recognized or perhaps the company had uh, previously. And I have the privilege of the, the, the leadership team that I stepped down from in my full-time role at the end of December last year is the most diverse leadership team in telecoms in the world. That's fantastic. I know that you're a big sports fan. I remember. I seem to remember when I f first went into your office when you were the CEO at O2, you had a framed Arsenal shirt on the wall. So I know that you're an Arsenal fan and I believe you're a Leinster rugby fan Correct. as well. And they're in the Champions Cup final um, exactly. this it's weekend. Exactly. This so Saturday. I shall be there in Marseille. Good luck with that. Um, and you're now chairman of Six Nations Rugby, a sports fan's dream job, I guess. And in your experience, who are the inspirational leaders and communicators in rugby and maybe sports in general? And what can we learn from them? So really interesting. Uh, I've had the privilege over the years, partly because O2 is a sponsor in rugby and partly because of my own appetite and interest in uh, in rugby, to get to know quite a few of the um, the ex-players as they are now. But probably the people in sport that have been the the ones that I've been most impacted by, I found Arsene Wenger as manager at Arsenal to be the most incredibly insightful and informed individual. Again, a voracious appetite for information, for facts, and not just about his own sport. He had an intimate knowledge of rugby as well as an intimate knowledge of, uh, of soccer, as I would call it, or association football. But 
What was really interesting and what I've seen in a number of those leaders who've been really inspiring is that balance of the skills that brought them to the forefront on the field and also enabled them to be successful off the field. Because one of the questions I always ask that I asked myself, but I always challenge when I'm doing coaching and mentoring that I ask and I talk about in my six lessons of leadership is that fundamental question of who are you? And truthfully, the answers you get aren't always that impressive. And I have a view that for most people, including professional sportsmen and women, that the answer to who are they is not that they're professional sportsmen and women. It's they as an individual and who they are, what drives them, what gives them their energy, what gives them their focus has enabled them to be successful sportsmen and women. But they're not defined by their job title. And I think there's a real uh, challenge and an opportunity there that a lot of people end up being defined by the role they're in and the job they're in, whereas actually the qualities that they have is what made them successful in that job. But those qualities may well make them successful. And that's why the people who've transitioned from being on the field success to coaches who have transferred into, into business. I mean, a lot of people don't know, but Sir Clive Woodward was a successful businessman at the same time as he was coaching uh, the England setup, you know, he had he ran and operated businesses. They had family leasing companies, a whole series of things. So the skills that he had and was successfully deploying as a business leader were also some of the skills that made him successful as a coach uh, on the rugby field. So it's that idea of it's that ability to identify what are those things that really define you, where your energy comes from, what makes you different from the others around you. If you tap into those, they're not just about playing professional sport. They may well be about setting you up to be exceptional at other things. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, now, I'm going to move back to curiosity now and staying connected. You described yourself a moment ago as as a 15-year-old curious kid. I'd like to, to ask, uh, why, why is curiosity important and how can curiosity help leaders engage more effectively with employees? I think there's two elements to it. The first thing is from curiosity comes growth because by definition, learning uh, is founded around this ability to and, and the desire to, to draw in new insight, new information. So I think people stop being curious, they stop growing. And actually, you see it in elderly people. Those who remain curious stay young, and those who don't show their age very, very quickly. But the truth is that curiosity also means that you are constantly reframing. And the great success for people in business is working out what the real question you're trying to answer is, which is also one of my six lessons of leadership. So many organizations fall into the trap of ready, fire, aim, because the organization has a desire to react quickly to something that's going on that's impacting it, whereas actually sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. So I think the reason why curiosity is so important and why it makes for very effective leaders is people who are naturally curious are constantly refreshing the fact pack, the data set, and reframing the exam question and making sure that they continue to listen, they continue to observe. How many of us have worked with leaders where you get the impression that they've heard it all before and they've learned it all before? And that unless you're going to do exactly what they tell you to do, is you're probably not going to make an impact on the situation. So that's why I think curiosity is so important. It's the refresh mechanism. 
Yeah. And listening, uh, you just mentioned listening there, which is which is a key component of engagement and I guess a key quality of a successful leader. Uh, now, I, I read somewhere that um, when the team was setting up your corporate Twitter account, I think you were at O2 at the time, you went and met with the top 20 influencers for a pint um, to ask what they wanted from the CEO. Is that right? Yes, indeed. We did uh, a tweet up uh, with Nicola Green at the time. And for me, it was a couple of things. Firstly, it was a new medium for me and I wanted to understand it because as a communicator, it wasn't just a question of showing up, but how was I going to show up in that particular medium? And one of the key things that we talked about, which was at that time still an, an unresolved or an, an ill-defined question was, is there a difference between me, the CEO, and my Twitter account, and me, the private individual? And some people do have separate Twitter accounts. And what became very clear was that the view of most of those influencers, which resonated with me, and it goes back to this authenticity thing, was that your best self is what you want to represent in any communications channel. And to do that, you need to be yourself. So if you're hiding 85% of who you are, all you're simply doing is being a comms channel for a brand or something else. It's not you. And guess what? O2 can do that or Verizon can do that under its title. If you're going to show up in that channel, it needs to be you that shows up. And yes, you can talk about the job. And yes, you know. But one of the things I've always um, made sure I, I, I avoid is simply becoming an advertising platform for any underlying brand. What I try to do is bring a personal perspective, including to technology, the job I do. But it might also be my daughter's hockey or my favorite rugby team or football team. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, final question. Hybrid engagement is one of the biggest challenges that we're all dealing with and considering at the moment. And now you were a CEO of a major US telco, Verizon, when the pandemic hit. Um, what communications lessons did you take from that experience that are still relevant to leaders in today's hybrid workplace, would you say? So I think a couple of things that I would observe. The first one, which I don't think it's completely gone away, but a really important communications lesson is that we had a common context when the pandemic hit because probably for the first time since a world war, everybody's narrative was being defined by one common input, which was a global pandemic. So that's an important consideration. And what it means is that people's sphere of impact and the influence on where they're getting information from is very different from what might otherwise be the case. And so one of the things that we did, and I think is a really important lesson for companies and for effective communicators, was to try to address the pool of uncertainty and to specifically identify those tangential, maybe second order and third order concerns where the company could actually do something about it and, as it were, drain the pond of uncertainty. So very practically, we're not going to lay anybody off and we're able to operate our systems and processes even if we work remotely. I can tell you, for every family of our employees, the ability for them to say, I know for certain that we're not going to be furloughed and we're going to be able to keep operating. Massive reduction in the risk. Yes, still health and safety concerns out there, but will I lose my job? Gone. What about the kids? We'll provide incremental childcare for everybody. Okay, so my two big worries, well, I lose my job and the kids are have to be schooled at home. How can I manage that and still do my job? So that idea of identifying those elements of uncertainty where the company can do something specific 
rather than, guess what, we can't solve world peace and world hunger, we can't solve a global pandemic, therefore we don't have a narrative. And the way we did that was we went live every single day at 12 o'clock on a program called Up to Speed. We took it out from behind the firewall so that husbands, wives, the kids could all listen in. Our customers could listen in. Politicians could listen in. Investors could listen in. And guess what? We stood up and we're up front and we said, this is what we're doing. These are the things that we're able to manage and this is how we're doing it. And that reassurance of the fact that some things were positively being addressed had a massive impact on people's mindset. And then, of course, the practicalities of how do you move 130,000 people to working from home in a period of you know, 10 days. We got on with those things. You know, We had, believe it or not, Michael Dell didn't have 35,000 laptops sitting anywhere at one time when we called him and said, all our call center staff are going to work from home and they only have desktops. We need laptops for them at home. But guess what? Within 17 days, I had 17,000 people up and running at home. So that idea of address, no matter what the situation is, address those elements of uncertainty where the company can make a meaningful difference. And if you do that, then you can manage the overall level of uncertainty and concern within your workforce. And I think that's a really important lesson going forward. It's fascinating that you used uh, internal comms as part of an external comms strategy. That's, that's very clever. I haven't heard that happen too often. Usually internal comms is thought of after the PR strategy, but in, in this case, it took the lead, right? It absolutely did. And in many ways, a very brave move to say, we'll come from behind the firewall, because we knew as soon as we did, the intent was to allow other family members, but we knew the reality was investors and all other stakeholders. And actually, we embraced that and said, guess what? It's a good thing. Yeah. Just connected to that, um, I guess in those situations uh, when bad change or, or potentially negative change is happening, the first question that most employees ask is, what is this going to mean to me, right? Is that something you think about when you're communicating to them in those, those situations, that I need to answer that question or at least address that question? So I always try to frame this idea of in the cascade of a communication is everybody wants to look up and understand big picture why we're doing it. And then the follow-on question is, and how does it affect me? But it's important that everybody wants to dream. So it is important to set the frame. You know, actually working with VCCP, with Charles and the team back in the day, one of the things we did was, you know, defining purpose for O2. And very, very simply and very briefly is, we believe the possibility of technology should be open to everybody. A fabulous ambition. Okay. So that's that purpose, that's the why. The how, by making it simple, easy, and intuitive, we allow people to do more and therefore be more. Brand campaign, be more dog. Last thing, the what? We sell mobile phones and plans. But guess what? Everybody wants to start up here and have that. But then when you're in the retail store and the what do we do? We sell mobile phones and plans. You have afforded the opportunity of the man famously at NASA. I'm here to put a man on the moon. We were all part of that same big ambition. That's what effective communication is about. That's fantastic. Ronan, that was really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much for that. Really enjoyed that. Now, I do have one final ask of you, if that's okay. So I ask each of my Delete, Delete, Engage podcast guests if they can take part in a quick fire comms round. Uh, now, there's six questions. So you ready? Yes. Sum up your communication style in three words. Uh, clear, simple, and ambitious. Of all the comms you receive, 
Roughly, what percentage do you delete without reading? 80%. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Um, Tickets for next year's Champions League final. I wonder why. (laughs) In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? It's to have a purpose and to engage in a way that creates fandom. What makes a good communicator? Brevity. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? In a way, Winston Churchill, as much for what he got wrong as what he got right. Wonderful. Ronan, thank you so much. Really enjoyed that. Hugh, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete, Delete, Engage, why not follow me on LinkedIn and subscribe to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage at substack.com.